Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. Nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob. And let me tell you what, my allergies are killing me this week. It's like ugh, springtime is, it's one of my favorite times of year. It's the most optimistic of the seasons, but I definitely pay for it with the, uh, with pollen or allergens or whatever. I feel like I'm talking through a scuba mask here. So if I sound weird, it is for that reason, uh, primarily or secondarily, depending on what your perspective is. But let's see, we have a, uh, we're going to do a pork episode. We're going to do a fun episode with a pork entree, uh, because I was thinking, you know, in a couple weeks, I'm going to have my three little piggies here on the farm. So, you know, in the next, next week or so, I need to work on some fencing and shelter solutions for them up in their pig pasture. But it's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of priming the pump for all the delicious pork products that I'm going to be enjoying at the end of this year and into next year and whatever. And this one, so this recipe is going to be fairly simple in terms of ingredients. And I know like I, I, I get a little bit of static for saying like, oh, this is a simple, this is a simple recipe. And they're like, oh, you've got 37 different ingredients here. I'm like, yeah, but it's, it's simple. I mean, you just measure out the 37 things and mix them all together. I mean, it's, it's not hard, you know, it's just, you know, a thousand piece puzzle isn't really, it's not twice as difficult as a 500 piece puzzle. You know what I mean? It's marginally more difficult, but it's, it's not undoable. <laughs> I don't really know how to explain that perspective, but for this one, this is actually a very short list of ingredients, but you know, you have to leverage the, uh, the technique side of it, I guess, you know, like sometimes you have a bunch of complicated ingredients, uh, that, that go into a recipe. Sometimes you have complicated processes that you have to employ, you know, like a lot of different steps that are integral to the, the final product. But then other times it's just about the technique, like, Hey, you have to cut this a certain way and then you have to do this other thing or whatever, yada, yada, yada. And, but if you do it, if you pay attention to what you're doing, you follow the directions, turns out not, I mean, yes, obviously it turns out delicious. Delicious is the main thing you're going for, but secondarily, it also turns out beautiful because that first bite is taken with your eyes, right? <laughs> All right. So what are we making? We're making a fig and cherry stuffed pork loin roasted and topped with a pistachio honey mustard crumble. Sounds, what does it sound like? It sounds obnoxious. I'm in an Ina Garden phase, if you can tell. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, if you can't, uh, if you can't obtain fresh cream milked by virgin Belgian milkmaids under the light of a full moon, then store-bought will suffice. <laughs> but uh, this is all pretty simple stuff. We're going to be using half of a whole pork loin. I mean, if you can get a boneless pork loin roast that is, you know, six to eight inches long, then that'd be really cool. I just got a whole pork loin and cut it in half and use the thicker end of that, okay? The stuffing, the, the, the fruit filling for this is going to be a combination of dried Turkish figs, fresh 
cherries and red wine. And then the uh, the pistachio crumble on the top is just going to be pistachios, Dijon mustard, honey. And it's going to be all pulsed together in the food processor. We're actually going to employ the use of the food processor twice for this recipe. Once for the fruit filling, once for the nut crumble. So if you've been on the fence about getting a Cuisinart or a robot coop or a wearing pro or i don't know there's a million brands of food process probably hamilton bay you know if you want to go low end i don't know i'm not sure exactly i'm not a food processor scientist uh, but we are going to use that a couple of times it's going to be very very uh useful i mean you can use a blender i guess but let's get started let's start with uh prepping our pork loin because we want to do this first because we are going to introduce a brining step here that's actually you know given the flavor and texture of the final product i would say that the brining step is not one that you want to that you want to skip it is integral to the uh the flavor palette that you're going to assemble with the final dish here so what we're going to do with the pork loin, like I said, I'm using half of a pork loin now to unroll this into a flat sheath of pork meat. It's going to be hard to describe via audio, but you have your cutting board in front of you. You have your pork loin situated on the cutting board so that it is going north to south like the long, the long axis is going north to south. Okay. So it's a, as if you're standing there casting a shadow and the shadow is the pork loin. This makes complete sense in my own head, but I may have completely lost you there. Regardless, using your knife, you want to use a, a knife with a long blade. You want to use a sharp knife because you want to, you don't want to be sawing through the meat whenever you do this. You want to kind of be able to, to make precision incisions, precision incision. What's that? What's that song? Um, what condition my, uh, I don't remember. I'm not even going to try. I'm so clouded with allergies and not being able to breathe. I'm just going to mess it up. I'll just go with conjunction junction. What's your function? That is not the song that I was thinking of, but it will work. Anyway, Take your knife. Hey, going long ways on the pork, roughly three quarters of an inch off of the surface of your cutting board. So if you lay your knife directly on the cutting board, parallel to your pork loin, and then lift it up so that there's three quarters of an inch of distance between the blade and the cutting board, that's how thick our, our, our unfurled pork loin is going to be because we're going to make that in first incision parallel to the cutting board and cut three quarters of the way through the body of the pork loin and then you know what'll happen you can take the the top meaty part and you can sort of you can lift it up off of the flap that you've created on the bottom and then make another stroke not going three quarters of the way through you're only going to go a little bit here because now each cut is only going to be about an about an inch deep but you make that cut and then you open up a little bit more you make another cut and you do that and you do that and do and do that until it is flat uh think about if you if you have a bath towel and it's all it's rolled up nice into a roll as opposed to folding it into squares and then you can unroll that you're doing the same thing with the pork loin except your bath towel you don't have to draw a knife across it every time you uh try to unroll it <laughs> this the the analogies are going off the rails with this one all right so anyway Look at the pictures. Look at the pictures in the Imager album, and you will see a pork loin intact, 
diagonally uh, situated on the cutting board with a big long knife next to it. And then the next picture is that same pork loin rolled out the way that I was just talking about. Okay. And that, that's basically the, uh, the format of the meat that we're going to be working with. Now, the next step is that we need to create a brine and then we're going to brine the pork loin for, uh, you know, maybe two to four hours. Okay. Real important. If you wanted to brine the pork loin prior to cutting it, you would be looking at a brining time of 10 to 12 hours on the low end, 24 hours on the high end, you know, to get good penetration of the brine and really uh, saturate the pork with the salty, sweet water that is the brine. But by opening it up like this, you increase the surface area, number one, and you reduce the thickness, number two. So a couple of hours in a fairly concentrated brine will work just fine. We're going with a rhyming scheme on this one. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Pork in the brine works just fine. I don't know. So let's talk about our brine. Uh, we don't need to do a huge brine. Like a lot of brine recipes will assume a gallon of liquid. Okay. For this one, we don't need a gallon because we're, we're dealing with a, a, a hunk of pork here that's like less than an inch thick. It just sort of is spread out. So we have a big giant stainless steel bowl and into that bowl we put one half cup of salt and one half cup of sugar now because i'm in the midst of this uh lifestyle and diet challenge thing i'm not eating or cooking with or consuming any uh granulated sugar or refined sugar like that so i used a half cup of maple syrup and let me tell you what it was pretty good. It was a-okay. If you wanted to use a half cup of maple syrup, you could do so, and it wouldn't be a compromise. You wouldn't be um, sacrificing flavor or texture to stay mm, consistent with uh, dietary guidelines that you've imposed upon yourself. No, it would be just as good, if not better. So a half cup of both salt and some kind of sugar. You could use brown sugar. You could use white sugar. You could use maple syrup. Get it in there and uh, then add about a half gallon of water. So think about that. If you were going to scale that brine recipe up to one gallon, uh, you'd use one cup of both the salt and the sugar and one gallon of water. Um, but we're just doing a half gallon. Whisk that all together real nice until uh, as much of the solids in your salt and sugar are dissolved as possible. I'm using this... Uh, you know, it's not Himalayan pink salt, but it is a pink salt that has a bunch of other minerals in it. So some of it does not dissolve because some of it is not salt. The minerals that give it the color and the little flecks of dark in there, those are impurities that are something other than salt and they don't dissolve in water. So anyway, whisk that up, get a nice clear brine and then lay your pork in that flat so that uh, the brine is touching all of the surface area, top, bottom, sides, whatever. Again, photos in the Imager album uh, linked in the show notes. So get that in the fridge. Like I said, two to four hours. That will allow the brine to work its magic. Now, let's just a brief aside, a little tangent on brining meats versus like rubbing meats or dry brining. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when... When you apply salt to meat in the absence of added water, 
for example, uh, dry curing bacon, prosciutto, you know, whatever, that is going to have a net benefit, or not a net benefit, a net result, a net uh, effect of drawing moisture out of the meat. You're going to be reducing the amount of water content in the meat. What that'll do, one, it'll make the meat salty, yes, but it'll also concentrate the flavor of the meat itself. So if you have a really flavorful cut of meat or uh, meat from you know, a very special animal like a pastured pig or you know a, a heritage breed beef that's been finished on clover or something, I don't know, whatever, something that is going to taste uh, different than just generic meat flavor. You'll be concentrating that by removing water and leaving a higher percentage of what's remaining as meat, <laughs> salted meat in this case. When you brine, whenever you add uh, a salty sweet liquid to the meat, what that's going to have the net effect of doing is drawing moisture into the meat along with the salt and the sugar. So if you have a pork belly and you you dredge it in salt and you let it cure that way, at the end of that process, if you wipe away all the salt and then weigh the pork belly, it's going to weigh slightly less than what it did going in. If you take that same pork belly and instead of dry rubbing it or uh, dry curing it, you put it into a salty, sugary brine as opposed to a dry rub, at the end of that curing process, that pork belly is going to weigh slightly more than it did when it went in because uh, the process of osmosis and trying to equalize the salt and the exterior with the salt to the interior and drawing salt in and pressing liquid out, yada, 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 this this pendulum effect that it, it does, it has the effect of pulling more moisture into the corpus of the meat than, um, than what it expels, okay? So whenever you brine meat like this, not only are you flavoring it with salt and sugar and spices or whatever else you add to it, but you're also increasing the water content, which will make it juicy and moist and delicious whenever you cook it. Okay, so that's the, the primary thing that we're going for here is we don't want dry, leathery, texturally deficient meat wrapped around delicious filling and topped with delicious crumble. We want the meat itself to shine and be as good as it can possibly be and the brining helps in that. Okay. So while that is brining, let's prep our filling. For this, we're going to use dried Turkish figs. Now, if you can get something like mission figs, that would be really cool too. Those are usually not dried to the extent that Turkish figs are. However, uh, the dryness of the fig doesn't really matter because we are going to hydrate them, okay, with red wine. So with the figs, uh, what do I got here? Two, four, six, eight, I got 10 figs, the majority of a little tub of figs that you can get from the grocery store, minus two or three because I ate some because they're delicious. Uh, but you get the, your figs there and uh, you're going to cut these up. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to do like a very fine mise en place dice on these figs. Basically, you just want to chop them up into like you know, a quarter inch to half inch chunks. When you do this, it would behoove you to uh, cut off the little stem remnant that is there because you don't want that hard woody uh, texture being in your filling. So you can remove those very easily whenever you're cutting them up and then chop them up into you know half inch cubes or whatever. Now, the more uh, time consuming part of this 
will be hitting an equivalent amount of cherries. Now, not an equivalent number of cherries, because if you had 10 cherries, it would be a far smaller volume than 10 figs. So I'm not going to count all the cherries that I used in the, in the picture, but let's just say that the, the pile of cherries is equal to the pile of figs. And what you need to do is you need to remove the stem and remove the pit. Now, do you have a cherry pitter? If so, cool, use that. If you don't, what's the easiest way to get the pit out of cherries? Is it to use a paring knife? Is it to use a cherry knife? No, it is not. It is to use your fingers and just split the fruit open and with your thumb and forefinger and the fingernail, grab a hold of the pit and yoink it out of there and drop the remainder of the cherry into a bowl where they are all going to be deposited along with the cubed figs. So do that. Give yourself enough time and take your time and, you know, rip the pits and the stems off of all those cherries and throw them in the bowl with your figs. And then get yourself some red wine. I have a, a bottle of uh, 2020 bread and butter Pinot Noir. And I uh, used about half the bottle to bring the wine level up even to the top of the fruit. Okay. That'll ensure that you have enough liquid in there to fully rehydrate the figs and also to impregnate the cherries with that delicious Pinot Noir flavor. Okay. Now that you can put it into a, a bowl pour the wine in there, cover it with uh, some saran wrap. You can either put that in the fridge or you can leave that on the counter. You know, when, if it's covered, you're not going to get any, you know, little flying insects in your kitchen getting into it. The alcohol content of the wine will keep it, you know, reasonable. It's like it's fruit that can exist at room temperature. It's, uh, you know, 12% alcohol, 12.5% alcohol wine. Um, all these things can happen at room temperature without any problem. Okay. So let them sit there, uh, for the, for the period of time that your, your pork is brining. Now, just before you remove the pork from the fridge to get everything prepped together, what you want to do is you want to strain that wine out of, uh, the fruit That is more, more liquid than what you need for this filling. So if you have a little sieve or colander or something like that, dump the fruit in there. Let the wine, ah, sadly, disappear down the drain. I mean, you could drink it, but I mean, ugh, that's that'd be a, that's a little rough. I mean, you only needed a half bottle of wine to begin with. So if you really if you really want to drink the wine, drink the first half of the bottle and then use the rest to make the fruit filling. Okay. But then your, your newly hydrated fruit, drained of the excess wine, can be dumped into your food processor, and then you want to buzz that until it's pretty smooth, okay? I had, I had considered actually simmering the fruit in the wine for, I don't know, maybe about a half hour on just like a scant simmer, because I thought that would give it a jammier sort of a texture. But I was thinking, does it really matter? Number one, does it really matter? Number two, I kind of want to see, I don't really want like a, a glassy, shiny, jammy sort of uh, texture and quality to this because I really like the quality of figs that they, they're like candy. They're And it's like in a Fig Newtons, the, the, the filling of Fig Newtons is just, you know, blended figs with the tiny little, you know, strawberry seeds and that candy like, you know, date, uh, fruit body. It's really nice. So 
why introduce an extra cooking step whenever it's not necessary whatsoever? So we just blend it up as is. There's enough residual liquid from hydrating the fruit that it makes it nice and smooth. And bada boom, bada bing. At this point, you can get your your brined pork out of the refrigerator. What I did was I laid down like a kitchen towel on a cutting board. I laid the pork on top of that and then I dabbed it really kind of forcefully with another towel on top. That would remove the the excess liquid from from the from the pork. I mean, you've absorbed a lot of this brine into the fibers of the meat. We definitely don't want excess moisture on the surface or even on the interior because there will still be enough retained liquid in the filling that we're going to be spreading on the meat itself. Again, if you want to look at the Imager album, uh, we have the meat laid out kind of opposite the way that we oriented the pork loin when we opened it up to begin with and using a spatula. I, I call it a spatula. So I understand a spatula can be like the thing with the handle in the flat metal surface that you flip eggs with on a griddle or something like that. It can also be the thing with the like the little paddle at the end and like a long, more angular handle. But it's also like that silicone head bowl scraper, which I know sometimes they're actually called bowl scrapers, but I call that a spatula too. But that's what they used. Wooden handle, rooster head on one end <laughs> and, and a silicone head on the other. And uh, we got all that out of there and just smeared it across the open face of the pork. And you want to get that on there pretty evenly. Give yourself, you know, about an inch at the edges so that... Um, you have a starting point, like you don't, you don't want to go edge to edge on this. We're not, we're not spackling an iPhone screen with fruit filling, but you do that. And then very gently, carefully, but tightly, like with the courage of your convictions, you want to roll this up starting at the end that's nearest to you, uh, rolling it away from you and with your fingers kind of tucking the edge in. Um, not so tight that you're squeezing all the filling out. Now you are going to have some of this filling is going to extrude through the ends and then bunch up on the last edge as you, as you roll this up. That's okay. You can, you can wipe that away with the spatula, plop it into a bowl and, you know, rinse it down the sink or whatever. You will get the vast majority of this filling inside of the pork loin, but you want to roll that up. And then using your butcher's twine, you can watch a YouTube video on how to tie a butcher's knot, or you can, you know, tie some sort of some semblance of a butcher's knot, but you take your twine and you, you slide it under the end and you bring it up there and tie it down. This, what this does, it does a couple of things. One, it will uh, cinch down the meat and it will get it as tight as you wanted it when you were rolling it up. So when you're rolling up, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to try to get this tight and it's never going to be as tight as you want it to be. So whenever you tie it down with the trusses, with the, with the butcher's twine, that gives you that additional tightness that you're looking for. Secondly, just that tightness is going to normalize the density of the meat from one end to the other. Now with a pork loin, it's not that important because a pork loin is fairly consistent. It's one giant muscle, more or less, that runs you know along the spine of the pig, and it's very heterogeneous. I don't know. It's a. Uh, it's very much the same from one end to the other. Now, if you're using a wonky piece of meat and you're rolling it up and tying it, where one side is a lot thicker than the other side or whatever, tying this will. 
um, create a consistent density for one into the other, which will allow it to cook better. It'll cook more evenly. Uh, it'll be tighter so that as the heat starts to penetrate the, the flesh itself, it will just continue conducting its way into the center. But uh, yeah, I think I used uh, one, two, three, four, looks like four trusses on that. Probably could have used a fifth one if I put them a little closer together, but four or five ties will be sufficient. Now, once you get that tied up, you can let it rest there for a minute. What we want to do is we're going to prep the vegetables that we're going to roast up with this. Now, you could definitely do things like carrots and onions and potatoes or something like that, you know, like, like pot roast vegetables, more or less. What I wanted to do was kind of lean into this uh, salty, savory, sweet melange that we had going on here by using vegetables that had unique flavors to them. So what I have here is uh, anise root, uh, anise bulb. You could also use fennel bulb. It would be very similar. Um, it's going to have sort of a black licorice -y kind of flavor to it, which my thought was, I'm going to start cooking this, and then people are going to be like, oh, it smells like licorice in here. But no, to a T, every other person in the household said, wow, that smells like pepperoni. Why? Because fennel is a is like the predominant flavor in pepperoni, and, and fennel has an anise sort of uh, aroma to it. So by having that anise smell emanating from the oven, everybody associated that with pepperoni as opposed to black licorice, which is cool because black licorice is kind of nasty. You know what I mean? But anyway, uh, so that anise bulb, I just chopped it into like thin wedges uh, and set those aside. And then I had some, some leeks that I cut the, uh, cut the greens off of, cut the root end off of, and then slice those like julienne them lengthwise into nice little leek matchsticks. And then we just sort of, uh, we put the, the pork roast, the pork loin on a rack inside of a, a roasting dish, a roasting pan, and we sprinkled the, uh, the anise and the leeks all around it. And I even like kept like the, uh, the anise greens and put those on one end because I figured, you know, it's going to be in the oven for a while. It's going to be roasting all these, these, uh, smell and flavor molecules are going to be bouncing off it going every other way. So if anything, you're treating these as aromatics as well as actual vegetables and, uh, it, it, it will help with the flavor of the pork. So what we do is we put that in a 450 degree oven and we're going to cut the heat later, but at 450 degrees, what we're going to do is we're going to get a nice crust. We're going to, we're going to uh, crisp up the fat on the surface of this pork roast. And then closer to the end, what we'll do is we'll reduce the heat down to like 300 and we'll apply our pistachio crumble on the top. Okay. So that's going to be at, at uh, 450 degrees for between 30 and 45 minutes. You can take a look, take a look at it at the 30 minute mark. If you have like a really good dark crust going on at that point, we can go ahead and jump ship on 450 and knock it down to 300 and do the rest. If not, if it can go a little longer, let it go to 45 minutes. Total cooking time on this is going to be about an hour and a half. It will vary depending on the thickness of the pork loin and um, how tightly you get it all tied up. That's basically it. So at the point where you're, you know, at half hour to 45 minutes when you're going to reduce the heat from 450 to 300, at that point in your cleaned 
uh, food processor, add, you know, a cup to two cups of uh, pistachios, shelled, obviously, one to two tablespoons of Dijon mustard, and, you know, two tablespoons of honey. And then pulse those together real nice. You don't have to go until it's like smooth. We're not creating pistachio butter here. We basically just want a thick, chunky paste, more or less. Okay. Now, uh, you've cut the heat down to 300 degrees. We can, with obviously with like oven mitts or gloves or something like that, remove the roasting pan from the oven and bring it over to wherever your workstation is. And again, using a spatula or a bowl scraper or whatever you call it, uh, scoop up that sticky pistachio mixture and very gently, you know, put a line of that right down the middle of the top of your pork roast. And what you can do is you can press it into the meat a little bit. Uh, it's not going to really adhere to the meat, but we're going to return this to the oven. The added heat will, first it'll loosen up the, the honey that's kind of binding all this together. So it will spread out a little bit. It'll melt down and, and settle against the pork. And then also once you bring it out and you let it rest later, then that honey will thicken up and it'll, it'll adhere very nicely. But what this is going to do, this is going to add a really nice flavor contrast to all these layers that you have going on. The meat itself is going to be delicious. It's going to be juicy, a um, little salty, little sweet. I mean, it's not going to be ham, ham flavor necessarily because we don't have any nitrates in the brine, but it's just going to be really wonderfully juicy, delicious pork. Obviously, the center is going to be very sweet and desserty. I mean, it's going to be basically like a, like fig Newton filling in the middle of this. It's fantastic. But then this exterior, this crumble on the top, it's going to have that. It's going to have the spicy, vinegary tang of the mustard. It's going to have the sweetness of the honey, and then the saltiness of the uh, pistachios. It's just, it's wonderful. In fact, I think the pistachio crumble was my favorite component of the dish. Um, I would like to make that and just crust that around everything. It'd be, oh, it'd be awesome. But uh, that's basically it. Oh, once you have your um, pork loin tied up and everything before you put it in the oven, you can salt the surface of it and pepper it and then, you know, add it to the roasting pan into the oven that way. Um, oh, you know what? I forgot. I did forget. Before and this goes in the oven. Whenever you have all your vegetables um, around the pork roast, add about two cups of chicken stock to the bottom of that pan. That will help. It'll impart a little bit of flavor. It'll make a nice, moist, steamy environment so that the, the vegetables will soften up from the bottom because they'll get nice and crispy and singed on the top. But then at the end, whenever you remove this from the oven and you're going to slice up the pork, what you can do is you can toss those vegetables together with whatever remaining liquid there is in the bottom of that roasting pan, the chicken stock, the drippings from the pork itself, and that'll be a really nice uh, flavor addition there. When you remove this from the oven, uh, you're going to want an internal temperature of 135 degrees. So that's what you're shooting for in this, like from this one hour to one and a half hour cooking time is we want the dead center of this pork roast to register 135 degrees. And then you can pull it from the oven, move it over to a cutting board and let it rest for like a good 10 minutes. 10 minutes would be great. What that'll do is that will allow the carryover cooking to occur. It'll probably come up to approximately 140 to 142 degrees. Um, that won't overcook the pork, especially since it's been brined. It'll stay juicy and supple and delicious. It will also allow the 
that juiciness, the, the moisture content of the pork to stop, you know, bouncing around. The molecules won't be as excited and, you know, running this way and that, and they'll slow down into a nice harmonic convergence and they'll kind of be suspended within the matrix of protein and fat that makes up the body of the pork. And so that whenever you cut it, you're not going to get a, an outpouring of moisture running out of the meat. And you can look at, um, the the cutting board that I have, you know, the the slices of the pork on, and there is a decent amount of moisture on that cutting board. That all came out during the resting period. It wasn't like whenever I cut this, a lot of the juices ran out of the pork. Um, anything that was going to drain out of out of the pork happened while it was resting. So that's okay in my book. Okay, uh, and then you know, ideally, you you cut this between the trusses, or maybe you get two slices um, between each one of the uh, the lines of butcher twine. And, uh, you know, you could, you could snip them off if you want, or the, the person enjoying this entree can gingerly remove it from the ring of pork and, and uh, fruit and nuts and all that that it has going on there. Uh, regardless of how you want to handle the logistics of that, I hope it turns out as wonderful for you as it did for me. All right. Thanks for listening this week. Talk to you guys next week.